There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Good evening, everyone. We've got a lot of news to get to tonight, including the latest bizarre new twist in the Matt Gates saga. And in a little while, I'll be speaking with Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg about the fight to fix the country's roads, trains, bridges and airports in the face of Republican opposition and moderate Democrats demands. But we begin the readout tonight with a dramatic day in court at the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. Last week, we heard from multiple police officers that Chauvin's actions that day, specifically keeping his knee on George Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes, even after Floyd no longer had a pulse, violated the police department's use of force policy. Well, today, it was the Minneapolis police chief himself making the case that almost everything Chauvin did that day was wrong. Do you believe that the defendant followed dep departmental policy 5-304 regarding de-escalation? I absolutely do not. Is this a trained Minneapolis Police Department defensive tactics technique? It is not. Is it your belief then that this particular um, form of restraint, if that's what you, if that's what we'll call it, uh, uh, in fact violates departmental policy? I absolutely agree that violates our policy. Is what you see in Exhibit 17, in your opinion, within Minneapolis Police Departmental Policy 5-300 authorizing the use of reasonable force? It is not. In a striking moment, the police chief spoke directly to the jury and made it clear that Chauvin did not represent his police force. Once there was no longer any resistance, and clearly, when Mr. Floyd was no longer responsive and even motionless, to continue to apply that level of force to a person proned out, handcuffed behind their back, um, that, that in no way, shape, or form is anything that... Um, uh, is by policy, it is not part of our training, and it is certainly not part of our ethics or our values. It was Arredondo, who is also Minneapolis's first black police chief, who fired Chauvin and the three other officers involved in Floyd's death just a day after the incident last May. A few weeks after that, he released a statement calling Floyd's death a murder. Arredondo wrote, Mr. George Floyd's tragic death was not due to a lack of training. The training was there. Chauvin knew what he was doing. The officers knew what was happening. One intentionally caused it, and the others failed to prevent it. This was murder. It wasn't a lack of training. With me now is Paul Butler, Georgetown law professor and former federal prosecutor, and former Detroit police chief Ralph Godby. Thank you both for being here. And Chief Godby, I want to start with you first, because what I, one of the things, one of the many things I found extraordinary about this case is the number of police officers 
testifying for the prosecution. The number of, you know, of the fellow police officers of Derek Chauvin coming out strongly against him. Before I let, let you respond to that, I just want to let you listen to one more soundbite of Chief Arredondo. This was actually an interview with NBC News last June about Chauvin. Take a listen. If you could look and be in the same room with Derek Chauvin, what would you say to him? I would not be in the same room with him. And I refuse to mention his name. He also talked about the need for police to be part of the community, to engage the community. He talked a little bit about that today. What do you make, uh, Chief Godby, of just this man testifying against Chauvin and all the other police who have done so? Well, Joy, I don't think we can underestimate the seminal moment that we're witnessing for a chief of police. Uh, chief Arredondo has set a new standard, a new bar for the expectation of police leadership. And I think his, his transparency, uh, his candor, uh, and it's just ability to just to call balls, balls and strike strikes. You you can't make sense out of nonsense and his ability to do that. I think that frees those beneath him of lower rank to really be courageous and bold to speak against a culture that's so entrenched in a thin blue line. Yeah, it, it's a, there is no thin blue line in this case, Paul. This is it, it, I mean, I, you, you wrote the book on, on chokeholds. I don't know if you find it as extraordinary as we do to, to hear police Talk about other police this way. It is. In most prosecutions of officers, police chiefs typically don't get involved in trials at all. Or when they do, they seem to support their cop. So this was really a big deal, in part because it was the boss, but in part because of the extraordinary testimony. He couldn't actually say this time that he thinks that Chauvin is a murderer because that's a decision that the jury has to decide. But a clear inference from his testimony today, Joy, was the chief of police thinks that one of the officers he employed is guilty of the ultimate crime. Yeah, he made it clear this wasn't our training. This wasn't policy. He was very clear. Let's let's play a little part of the defense attempting to sort of undercut him. So he tries to refute the chief's testimony by trying to, I guess, make what Chauvin did sound like some sort of weird form of de-escalation. Here's that. Yes. Was your leading theory then for the cause of Ms. Floyd's cardiac arrest oxygen oxygen deficiency? That was one of the more likely possibilities. I felt that at the time, based on the information I had, it was more likely than the other possibilities. And, and doctor, is there another name for death by oxygen deficiency? Asphyxia is a commonly understood term. That actually was uh, Dr. Bradford Langenfeld on the cause of death. We're now going to play. So we're going to come back to that in a second. Now, this is the chief um, reacting to the defense, trying to sort of make this look like de-escalation, what uh, Chauvin did. Take a look. Sometimes de-escalation, again, includes the use of force. Right? The use of force can be a de-escalation tactic. I was, in counselor, I was thinking of your example of displaying your 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 weapon, and so I don't have a, a lot of knowledge in terms of physical force being used to actually de-escalate a situation, uh, but the threatening use of force or threatening verbally, that's, I'm more familiar with that. Chief Godby, how long how long have you been at war cop? May I ask you how long? What's your uh, number of years experience? 
I started in 19. Uh, I just left policing uh, last year. So over 35 years in law enforcement. And, you- and I must say, Joy, yeah. if, if I could, positional asphyxia, and I'm sure Professor Butler can attest to this, absent three people on your back and one individual on your throat, for the past 20, 25 years in policing, we have been very, very sensitive positional asphyxia. If he were just laying on his stomach with his hands cuffed behind him, he was still subject to die in that circumstance. What Chauvin did exacerbated it. And I'm just so proud of Chief Arredondo for not buying into the nonsensical arguments of the defense. Yeah, absolutely. You anticipated my question and answered it. And Paul, you know, we, we watched the Eric Garner case play out very differently. The defense, uh, in order to get those police out of that situation, were able to sort of portray him still thrashing, still struggling and sort of make it, you know, somehow sort of magically try to make him into some sort of a threat. In this case, there's been testimony that this man was probably already dead. You know, he cannot be a threat to you if he's dead. I wonder if you think the defense is getting anywhere with the the kind of arguments, including trying to undercut the experience of Chief Arredondo and of Officer Zimmerman, uh, Lieutenant Zimmerman. The defense is not doing a good job at poking holes in the prosecution's strong case. The chief testified today that Chauvin should never have put his knee on Floyd's neck because that's deadly force, which Chauvin was never entitled to use because Floyd never threatened anybody's life. And in any event, when Chauvin lay stomach down in handcuffs, saying 22 times he can't breathe, the chief testified that the force should have stopped immediately. Joy, this testimony, I think, will profoundly impact the jury. Can, let's take a step back just a minute, um, Chief Godby. If you have problem officers on the force, let's just say in theory, on your force, what difference would it make if they knew from a case like this that it's possible to go to prison for doing this? Does that actually have the potential in your professional view of changing behavior, because up to now, I feel like because officers know you almost never go to jail, you just do the magic words. I thought I saw a gun. I feared for my life and you get away with it. Do you think that if somehow, and I'm not anticipating it will happen, but if there was a conviction, would that help police chiefs to get officers to behave in a different way, in your view? In a perfect world, I would like to think so, Joy. But the culture so deeply entrenched, I mean, going back to slave patrols, which was the first organized policing force in the United States of America. um, I think this is a victory if there's a conviction and we should celebrate that. But that is far from a panacea for, um, I mean, just the broken criminal justice system that we have. So it would be a tremendous start. It would be a disincentive to some. However, Uh, I don't want us to get a uh, sugar high and think his conviction alone is going to change the uh, landscape of policing in the United States. Very wise words. And, you know, Paul, I guess the question is, what should we start to anticipate next? We've kind of seen where the defense is trying to go. They want to blame. He wants to blame the crowd. He wants to say the crowd was inciting. He wants to blame pretty much everybody but Chauvin. Um, This case, the prosecution's case might wrap this week. What what do you anticipate we're going to be in for when the defense starts their case in chief? So the next phase of the trial is the battle of experts on the cause of Floyd's death. The prosecution's experts will testify that the drugs in Floyd's system 
were not enough to kill him, in part because Mr. Floyd had developed a high tolerance level. And they'll also testify that what the jurors see on the video, Mr. Floyd pleading for his life, calling for his mom, saying goodbye to his children, those acts are not consistent with how people respond when they're about to die of a drug overdose. And Joy, the defense has one star witness, the medical examiner, whose reports say that Mr. Floyd did not die of asphyxia, he died of heart failure. But even that official autopsy says that Chauvin's actions were a cause of the heart failure. That's why the official cause of death includes homicide. It's a medical term, not a legal term, but it still implicates Chauvin. The prosecution doesn't have to prove that Mr. Floyd uh, died only based on Chauvin's actions, just that Chauvin's actions were a substantial contributing factor. This is a fascinating trial. I've never seen anything like it, honestly. Just this many police testifying against the police. That, that's not normal. We haven't seen that before. Paul Butler, Ralph Godby, thank you both. Really appreciate you guys' expertise this evening. And up next on The Readout, the Senate parliamentarian gave Democrats a major boost today, signing off on their plan to use reconciliation to pass President Biden's ambitious infrastructure agenda with a simple majority. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg joins me next. And Congressman Matt Gates says there is no way he's resigning as the investigation into alleged sex crimes rolls on. Plus, we could find reasons to crown Florida Governor Ron DeSantis the absolute worst on a daily basis. A new reporting on how he rewarded his wealthy donors with special vaccine access certainly makes him bad. He's bad. But believe it or not, he's not tonight's absolute worst. Want a hint of who it is? They're frenzies. The readout continues after this. Last week, President Biden unveiled his bold vision for the future, a sweeping $2 trillion infrastructure plan. A recent Reuters-Ipsos poll shows that 80% of Americans support the idea of a government overhaul of roadways, railroads, bridges, and forts. In fact, pretty much everything in the bill has wide support. And yet, Republicans have made their opposition very clear. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. It's Monday night. It's Monday, everyone. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. It is described as an infrastructure bill, but as I listened to it and looked at what was being uh, advocated here, it was another round of massive spending. This is not an infrastructure bill. It's also outrageously expensive. Uh, there is no free lunch. You don't get one now.
This bill is a Trojan horse for major tax hikes on America's workers and families. It spends more money on things like electric vehicles than it does on roads and bridges and ports and airports. Would you do a- and then there's West Virginia Prime Minister, I mean, Senator Joe Manchin. Earlier today, he made clear what he wants from the bill. This bill will not be in the same form you've seen it introduced or see people talking about it. And if I don't vote to get on it, it's not going anywhere. So we're going to have some leverage here. And it's, not, it's more than just me, Hoppy. There are six or seven other Democrats that feel very strongly about this. And while he wants Republican buy-in, he warned that Republicans can't just oppose everything. Meanwhile, economists at Georgetown University have estimated that a $1.5 trillion infrastructure investment could create roughly 15 million jobs and could put the United States on par with countries around the globe that shuttle their citizens from town to town on high-speed trains, the Autobahn, and wide bike lanes. Some Biden administration officials are leading by example. Take a look at Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, who left a recent White House meeting on his bike. Security detail in tow. Joining me now is Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg. Uh, First of all, nice bike. I tried riding my bike after pulling it out of storage after about a year. You definitely looked better doing that than I did. I wobbled around a little bit, but um, congrats on doing the biking. Let's talk about, first of all, let's start with the Democrats. Uh, Joe Manchin, who we sort of labeled the prime minister here, because he does seem to believe he's in charge of the United States Senate, he says he's got about half a dozen people with him on not being happy with the bill. Have you had a direct conversation with him? And do you believe that right now you could get the votes if this went through on um, reconciliation? Well, there are 100 senators with 100 views about uh, exactly how uh, they think it should be done. But broadly, I'm seeing a lot of energy and excitement for the bill. I'll be catching up with Senator Manchin soon. Uh, I've been speaking with Republicans and, and Democrats on uh, both uh, in, in both houses, you know, the House and the Senate. And uh, what I'm hearing is a lot of energy and a lot of excitement for the idea of infrastructure investment. Uh, a little bit more challenge when it comes to deciding exactly how to pay for it. But, uh, you know, the president has put forward a vision that has support from the American people. Uh, Republicans and Democrats, uh, a lot of mayors from both parties. And so, of course, we're going to dig into the details, uh, talk with senators and House members and and see if they have other ideas or refinements. But uh, let's be clear. This is a vision that does what it takes to create millions of jobs, to put America back in first place instead of 13th place, which is where we are right now. And one other thing I want to mention, that Georgetown study that you mentioned has something else really important and interesting in it. The majority of the jobs that they estimated would be created don't require a college degree. At a time when we're really worried about blue-collar jobs in places like where I come from in the Midwest, the fact that we're going to create so many jobs, many of which, again, don't require a college degree, I think is incredibly important. You know, it's interesting you say that because, right, you're a former mayor, and so you know potholes are politics, right? People want to see their roads fixed. They want to see the potholes dug in. They want the trains to run on time. Like, that's actually kind of politics 101. Even Steve Bannon, when he wasn't doing warmed over white nationalism, was telling Trump, do infrastructure. It's something Republicans and Democrats both like because you can see your tax money actually, you can see it, right? It's actually tax money you can see working. When you're talking to people who are against this, What is their objection? Because I can't think of anyone who doesn't want roads and bridges and things in their in their district or in their state. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, the biggest things I'm hearing are, uh, you know, some different views on how to pay for it. But the president's view is clear, which is that no one making less than $400,000 should pay anything more in taxes for this, especially when you got corporations out there, some of which paid zero on billions of dollars in profits. So what we're going to do in the president's plan is a fair corporate tax rate that, by the way, still lower than it's been for most of our lifetimes, but enough to get the job done. The other objection I hear is kind of semantic or philosophical. They're saying, is this infrastructure or is that infrastructure? I've even heard some Republicans oddly suggesting that water pipes and wastewater pipes aren't infrastructure. I don't understand that view, but but in any case, uh, I don't really care which label you apply to which part of the plan. Every part of the plan is popular and good, as far as I can tell, uh, in terms of what it's going to do to create jobs. At the end of the day... It's a jobs plan. So speaking of water and infrastructure, let me play you the, the, the um, governor of Mississippi, Tate Reeves, whose state capital has a severe problem. Jackson, Mississippi is having a severe problem with water and they need infrastructure. But here he was on the weekend objecting to the plan. There's no doubt that Mississippi could use our fair share of $100 billion. The problem with this particular plan, though, is although the Biden administration is calling it an infrastructure plan, it looks more like a $2 trillion tax hike plan to me. How do you pay for it, then? Well, I think you pay for it in a number of different ways. Um, One way you pay for it is by seeing significant improved economic growth. Yeah, yeah, that tax cuts, tax cuts. That's what they're always saying. Okay, let's go back to how you get this actually through. What are you willing to give up in terms of the White House's negotiation here? Is it going to be to, you know, make that reduction in the corporate income tax, what Joe Manchin wants? What is it going to take? Because this looks like it's going to have to be another reconciliation bill. Well, we have to get it done, but we want to get it done in a way that uh, is bipartisan and that takes a lot of ideas on board. So, you know, what the president laid out was a clear vision, but I think uh, you'll always find that he's open to ideas. And now we're hearing those both from members in our party and from across the aisle. That's fine. Uh, We can take on a a lot of those ideas, discuss them. Uh, We've already had conversations in the Oval Office with both sides of the aisle. I'm sure that'll continue. Bottom line, we've got to get something done. And the president is hoping to see major action from Congress, major progress before Memorial Day. I'd love to be yeah. celebrating in the summer that we actually got this done and beginning to work. I, I'm tempted always to call you Mayor Pete, but Secretary Pete, uh, I am obsessed with infrastructure, by the way. So you are right uh, doing the thing both. that's up my alley. So come back and talk about this again. I'm sorry we don't have more time, but I'm going to let you go on and do your other interviews. But uh, come back and talk more about this, uh, this plant. Thank you. All right, Secretary uh, Pete Buttigieg, thank you. And if you thought that you were exempt from the Florida man's money-grubbing scheme just because you're a Trump supporter, think again. Tonight's Absolute Worst is next. Stay with us. There's yet another spotlight set on Governor Ron DeSantis over his vaccine distribution strategy in Florida. Now, we already know that under DeSantis, the wealthiest communities got priority access long before lower income residents. But there's new scrutiny of his decision to privatize the vaccine rollout, granting exclusive rights to public supermarkets to administer the vaccine. That's because DeSantis's decision came just weeks after Publix donated $100,000 to his political action committee. Now, CBS's 60 Minutes is raising concerns about a potential pay-to-play scheme. And they point out that for some of the poorest residents of Palm Beach County, reaching the nearest Publix took more than two hours round trip on the bus. 
DeSantis' management of the COVID crisis is terrible, but he's not today's absolute worst, believe it or not. That distinction goes to another Florida resident, one of the one of the swanky side of Palm Beach County, the former president, whose treatment of his own supporters shows what he really thinks of them. In the past, Trump has boasted about using other people's money to finance his most ill-conceived ventures. It's called OPM. I do that all the time in business, called other people's money. There's nothing like doing things with other people's money. Yeah, in fact, scamming people out of their money has been his life's work. Just ask the stockholders of his Atlantic City casinos or the students of Trump University or anyone who donated to his now defunct charitable foundation. So it should come as no surprise that the Trump campaign duped unsuspecting donors into making recurring contributions, sometimes without their knowledge. According to The New York Times, the campaign had begun last September to set up recurring donations by default for online donors for every week until the election. For instance, one donor fighting cancer in hospice care thought he was making a one-time contribution of $500, but he soon discovered $3,000 in withdrawals by the Trump campaign in less than 30 days. The Times reports that Trump supporters had to claim fraud to get their money back. And no, not voter fraud, actual fraud. The campaign and Republican committees had to issue over half a million refunds in the last two and a half months of the election, returning more than $64 million to online donors. That's 10 times more than the Biden campaign in the same period. And yet, despite those refunds, Trump still benefited from the scam. Much like a Ponzi scheme, the cash from subsequent Trump donors, some egged on by his big lie on the election, that money was used to help cover the refunds that he owed. In other words, the money that Trump eventually had to refund amounted to an interest-free loan from unwitting supporters. It's almost as if we should have been warned. My whole life I've been greedy, greedy, greedy. I've grabbed all the money I could get. I'm so greedy. Former, disgraced, twice impeached ex-president Donald Trump for treating your own supporters as marks and using the dangerous big lie as part of the scam, you are the absolute worst. We'll be right back. Despite being the subject of a federal sex crimes investigation, Republican Congressman Matt Gates says he is absolutely not resigning. Instead, he seems to be taking the advice of Roger Stone, who advised him over the weekend to go on the offense. Gates is now defending himself in an op-ed in the conservative Washington Examiner, saying, among other things, that he's being targeted because he's happily engaged to a human woman. Gates complained that my political opponents want to sensationalize and criminalize my prior sex life just as I'm getting engaged to the best person I've ever known. Please stop saying sex life, please, sir. He even suggested that the federal probe was retaliation for his decision to campaign against fellow Republican Liz Cheney of Wyoming, who voted to impeach the former president. Today, an ex-Gates staffer who said that he had been interviewed by the FBI held a bizarre press conference to defend his former boss. But even he conceded that he actually has no evidence that Gates that might actually exonerate Gates. What of the investigation do you know that can lead you to, uh, uh, would lead you to uh, discredit the investigation? I don't have any specific knowledge on the investigation or any of the facts that uh, are involved with the investigation. <laughs> Privately, Republican lawmakers tell The Hill that Gates's days in Congress are numbered. And one congressman is even donating the contributions that he's received from Gates to victims 
of abuse. Joining me now is Fernando Mondi, Democratic pollster and strategist, and Angela Rye, former executive director and counsel of the Congressional Black Caucus. Thank you both for being here. Uh, let's start with some of the, a little bit more into these a- allegations. Fernando, you know Florida, you know this uh, this character uh, very well. Um, the Washington Post reports that Gates is said to have boasted of his access to women provided by the very friend who's now charged in the sex trafficking case. Three people involved in the 2018 gubernatorial campaign of Ron DeSantis said that Gates, an advisor who later helped lead DeSantis' transition team, repeatedly suggested that events be scheduled in a way that would end the night in a college town. So there's the three amigos, DeSantis, Gates, and perhaps this friend that's now being charged with sex trafficking. What the hell is going on in Florida, Fernand? (laughs) Joy, you remember that 80s movie, uh, Gremlins? Well, Florida is what happens when you feed the Trump Republican leaders after midnight. I mean, it's just a chaotic untenable situation. And to explain Matt Gates, uh, I mean, you kind of said the answer there yourself. He knows that he is just one of many Florida men. And we have the scandal du jour happen here. And when you're competing with the likes of the state of Florida, like Ron DeSantis, Rick Scott, Marco Rubio, Donald Trump and the Trump family who now lives here. I mean, he's trying to hide between the shadows of the scandal and just try and live and fight another day in the classic Roger Stone style, as you saw. But fundamentally, what this is going to come down to is his alienation of so many other Republican members of Congress. The knives are privately out for Matt Gates, And I think he will be out of Congress by the end of this calendar month. Yeah. Speaking of uh, Washington and alienating fellow Republicans, Angie, uh, let's talk about Liz Cheney. Uh, which Republican did not get censured or, or t- you know, thrown under by her party for going against Trump? Liz Cheney. Uh, she's from a pretty powerful family. Here's Matt Gates thinking he was going to come for her in her state of Wyoming. Liz Cheney calls herself a leader in Washington, but to me, being a leader does not mean winning an election a bunch of, uh, amongst a bunch of politicians. Being a leader doesn't even mean that you've lived a flawless personal life. I can tell you, I sure haven't. Yeah, clearly you haven't. Uh, is Liz Cheney at home saying, let Matt Gates know it was me? <laughs> <laughs> or or maybe she's just saying, look at these chickens coming home to roost, right? Like this is this is. That kind of a thing. What's so fascinating about this is, um, you know, Roger Stone's tactics and his strategies have often proved to work, um, surprisingly. And I think the only thing we can attribute it to is uh, white male privilege. Um, But in this instance, maybe those chickens are also coming home to roost because this stuff is continuing to backfire. One thing that I noticed today, Joy, about this press conference from Nathan Nelson, who is a former gate staffer, um, he happened to mention that he offers free services around um, um, military advisory work while he's in the private sector. I don't know if they've never heard of congressional ethics, but uh, there may be some concerned citizens out there who want to call 202-225-9739 to report an inappropriate gift, right? There are these kinds of things that are happening. So sometimes when you find yourself trying to clean up a mess, you create more mess. The fact that he was in the Florida state legislature opposing revenge porn while showing off videos of naked women on his phone, also problematic. And he's talking about he's not a monk. Sir, we know. We're just trying to figure out if you have any moral fiber in your being. 
Yeah, and just trying to get him to stop using the word sex. Like, if he would just stop saying that over and over, we don't want to hear him ever say that. So just stop saying that. Um, let's just show a picture. Here's a here's a little selfie with uh, Stone, Gates, uh, and Greenberg in 2017. It, it is interesting, Fernand, how Florida has sort of become the kind of choke point for this certain kind of politician, including now Donald Trump, who I guess is now sort of crowned the king of Palm Beach, the king of Florida. And all of these scandals all seem to kind of be interconnected. The kind of guy Ron DeSantis is, who's like only the rich are allowed to get their vaccines first and the rest of you, you know, plebs can get it later. You know, that kind of politics. I don't know how Florida keeps breeding that, but DeSantis is then seen as the next big thing nationally for the Republican Party. There's something the Republican Party likes about that kind of politics. I don't get it. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. Well, I mean, Joy, part of the problem here, and, and it's a little ominous, it's a little frightening to contemplate, but Florida is a laboratory, in a sense, for what the Republican Party or the GQP would look like if Donald Trump was able to win a second term or if the Republicans capture the nation again in 2024. They are trying to create this quasi-autocracy that all of the conditions already exist in the state. They have total control of the legislature. They have total control of the courts. We're seeing now an environmental catastrophe happening in Manatee County, where because of total uh, deregulation, which has been the, the, the currency of the realm here for the Republican Party over the last generation or so, there is basically just infrastructural calamity taking place. When you, when you add to that, though, there is also a sense of impunity for a lot of these folks here. And my fear and my concern is as Florida begins to continue to become this state that is fortified as a Republican state and a model for the future, you're going to see them start to export this and copy some of the worst practices like we've seen them do in copying the Georgia voter law. That's already in place here. They're going to try and do more things like that. It's very scary for the future. And that's why while we joke about Florida man and the hashtag because, because Florida it is a very dangerous place because it is the front line for the Republican autocracy of the future right now. Well, and also, Angela, you know, we're also seeing the Republican Party sort of devolve into sort of one big grift, right? Or maybe it's just been that way. We're only now noticing it. I mean, the fact that the big lie that produced, you know, five dead police officers, dozens of police officers injured, you know, all of the calamity and sort of the disgrace of the United States around the world, we now know was also part of the grift to get those people to give more money so that Trump could pay back the previous people he grifted. I wonder at some point, do you think that this sort of um, management of people's demographic panic to get money from them. Does it run out of gas at some point? Do people say, you know what? I'm tired of brown scare and black scare. I I'm giving you money because of it. You know, Joy, what I hope happens is that people start, stop running towards that because it makes them feel better and run towards the truth, even if the truth hurts. So for example, today the Heritage Foundation has this tweet about you know, Joe Biden, this big, scary socialist tax plan with the, you know, the biggest tax increases ever. Y'all forgot to talk about the biggest tax cuts ever. Right. And I think that at some point this stuff all has to balance out. 
you know, um, at some point folks have to stop voting their dreams and voting their interests. There is a distinction. Y'all aren't there yet. I know that y'all probably want to be rich and be partying out here with Matt Gates, but there's con- consequences for that. Right. Yeah. And on top of that, you have to understand that you may have more in alignment with a poor black or brown person. You may have more in alignment with somebody that is in the South and you're in the, you know, the Midwest or you're in Joe Manchin's state. Right. And so that means that you have to vote in alignment with what is in your best interest, not what they're telling you. The stuff that they're telling you is not even true. And so shame on Heritage Foundation for the tweet today. And I hope that people will start focusing on what is true and what is right rather than on scaring people. The fear mongering in politics has turned dangerous and has been that way for some time. But we're only seeing we're only going to continue to see it increase if folks don't really start walking in the full knowledge of the truth. No, absolutely. I think about Mississippi, right? A state that is starving for infrastructure. And the governor there is like, just cut taxes. They already have their taxes cut to the bone. They have Jackson, the capital. They don't have water. I mean, and he's he doesn't want that. You don't want that. You just want to cut taxes very quickly for non. I don't understand this just from a political science point of view, because at a certain point, don't you want water? Don't you want rail to work? Don't you want infrastructure? I don't understand the Republican position on saying no to that. Well, that's what I was saying earlier. It's, it's an untenable position. But to your point, it's a cash grab. It's a grift. It's a Ponzi scheme and a pyramid scheme here where they're just trying to do as much as possible in a short period of time and then the consequences be damned later. But keep in mind, the hope for the future is Florida continues to be a competitive state, even though the presidential results weren't as close as some folks thought in midterms. We saw Andrew Gillum only lose the governorship by about 30,000 votes. Bill Nelson only lost by about 15,000 votes. If the Democrats do not give up on Florida and make a real play, they can turn things around. But if not, Joy, you got to look at this as the cradle of the Republican Party of the future, because all the major candidates are coming out of this state for the Republicans. Yeah. All right. Well, we got to debate that one because I, we, we got to they got to find the right candidates. So they got to find the right candidates. It's very hard to win in Florida. Fernanda Mondi, Angela Rye. But you're the pollster, not me. So I'm going to go with your wisdom on that. Thank you both very much. Up next, America's white evangelical movements, cult-like adoration of Donald Trump presents a dangerous convergence with the white nationalism and QAnon level conspiracy theories that we're seeing out there. More on that next. Conservatives who have attempted to cancel many aspects of American life, from Colin Kaepernick to the 2020 election results, are fuming over the corporations that are taking a stand against the Georgia Jim Crow voting law that's designed to cancel black voters. Take former Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee. No, really take him. Who, by the way, is also a Southern Baptist minister who tweeted on the day before Easter, I've decided to identify as Chinese. Coke will like me. Delta will agree with my values. And I'll probably get shoes from Nike and tickets to MLB games. Ain't America great? Exclamation point. Meanwhile, trigger happy Congresswoman Lauren Pew Pew Boebert managed to uncancel Jesus on Twitter. While Senator Raphael Warnock, who's also a reverend for Atlanta's famed Ebenezer Baptist Church, was accused of actual heresy for a since deleted Easter tweet about helping others. God forbid. This on the 53rd anniversary of MLK's assassination. Perfect. I mean, that pretty much sums up what 
Christian right Twitter looked like on Easter weekend. Anti-Asian racism, accusations of heresy, straight out of the Inquisition era, and firearm Jesus rising from the ashes of burnt Dr. Seuss books. Joining me now is Anthea Butler, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Pennsylvania and author of the new book, White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America. Uh, it's good to see you, Anthea. Long time no see. Let's jump right into this. It, it, you know, a lot of people sort of, it's counterintuitive, but the strongest adherents to Trumpism are white evangelicals. It's people who see themselves as Bible-believing Christians who go to church every week. White evangelical uh, Christians voted 76% for Trump, only 24% for Biden. And that's consistent. They're 28% of voters. Can you explain that? Yes, they love Donald Trump. He is their guy. He is King Cyrus. Moreover, Donald Trump did exactly what he wanted them to do. He gave them judges. He gave them Supreme Court judges. And moreover, they didn't care whether he had been married three times. They didn't care about any of that stuff because here's the interesting thing. Morality is a shield for evangelicals to get power. And this is what I think we haven't really understood before, but now it's time to say this. All of the things that happened over Easter weekend were not about Jesus. It was about how can we continue to be front and center in the media scrum? And not only that, how can we take down the senator that we want to come against when we have a special election in 2022? So I think it's disingenuous for all of these evangelicals to pretend like they care about theology or morality when what they really care about is power. You know, and I think about the fact that the, you know, the, 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 the Baptist convention, the Southern Baptist convention didn't say anything when the when Major League Baseball was segregated. They weren't out there saying Major League Baseball let black people play. Uh, they didn't say anything to defend Dr. King. Uh, here is uh, Dr. King. Let me play a little bit of this. This is the speech that Dr. King gave uh, that mentions Coca-Cola. This was his final speech in Memphis, Tennessee. Take a listen. We're asking you tonight to go out and tell your neighbors not to buy Coca-Cola in Memphis. So he was saying boycott because Coca-Cola wasn't going to hire black people. He was saying then we should not buy Coca-Cola. You know, and King with the Poor People's Campaign, to me, that is the gospel, at least the gospel I grew up with, is that you're supposed to mind the poor, the immigrant, the suffering who Jesus loved. They're basically saying, nah, we don't want to hear any of that. Just put Christians first. Give us all the judges. And, and what? What is it that they seem to want, uh, white evangelical, at least this movement, not all of them, but this movement? I think this this movement wants power for themselves, first of all. They want favor for themselves. They have forgotten that Jesus said to mend the poor and the brokenhearted. They don't care about anyone else except themselves, so they won't get vaccinated. They won't do anything else that helps their fellow man. And I think they've forgotten the golden rule. And as I point out in my book, I think what's really important for us to understand is that this is a 200-year history of what evangelicals have done. It's not about Donald Trump. It's about everything that's led up to Donald Trump. So whether we're talking about slavery, whether we're talking about you know the ways in which Billy Graham didn't want really the civil rights movement and was really cool about King after a while, to all of the things that happened from the 70s on forward, what we have to understand is the game that evangelicals are playing today is the same game that they've always played. There's morality for you, but not for me. And that's what's I, important. I think you need to understand that. I know I, Bishop Barber is always saying, you know, evangelical means you're supposed to be bringing the good news to the, you know, to the poor. Right. That, that's supposed to be what you're supposed to be talking about. This thing you just mentioned on the vaccine, this is now going to become a public health problem. White evangelical resistance is now an obstacle per The New York Times to the vaccination effort. As you just mentioned, millions of white evangelical adults in the U.S., do not intend to get vaccinated against COVID-19. 
um, mistrust of science, mistrust of uh, et cetera, and also their politics. Now this is a public health issue. What can be done yeah. about that if, 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 in the, if in their churches they're preaching against getting the vaccine? Because that means, I don't know how we get to herd immunity without 28% of the population. Well, we're not going to get there. First of all, and secondarily, we're going to have a lot of funerals in those churches where they refuse to wear masks and everything else because they believe that Jesus is going to save them and that it's just my time. But again, this is about the selfishness and where evangelicalism has gone. And it's it's really quite a shame. There are things that have been good historically about the movement, but this anti-science sentiment and the ways in which they are digging their heels in promises to be an absolute debacle for them. When you put this on top of the racism where they're calling, you know, the coronavirus, the Chinese virus, and all of these other things that, you know, their Lord and Savior Donald Trump said, then you have to add up and wonder what is really wrong with these people that they continue to go against the best interests of not just themselves, but the rest of society in order to be recalcitrant. There is nothing about this, absolutely nothing, that says anything about what Jesus Christ taught. It is a it is a movement that is stuck on itself and not on the person who is supposed to be the center of it. Well, and can you just tell us then, is there a liberal evangelicalism that is counter to that? And is it of significant size um, to sort of counter what you're seeing in that sort of right wing evangelicalism? Yeah, I think there really is. And I think part of what's happening now is that you see a lot younger people and people who have been absolutely disgusted with the movement, disgusted with the racism, disgusted with the homophobia and everything else who are leaving in droves. We start to see these numbers going down. And so I think what we're seeing is I never want to say that the religious right or evangelicals are going away. What I think we're seeing is an attrition that is based on where they are right now in terms of their recalcitrance, first of all, and the hardening. And secondarily, I don't think they can expect anybody to want to join a Southern Baptist church when Beth Moore has left. And the last Southern Baptist that was in the news shot eight people in Atlanta because he had a a supposed sex addiction. And what does it mean that they do have control of the Supreme Court? That is one place where they are six, three ahead. Yeah. And I mean, I think this is going to be an issue for us. And I think this is one of the things that, you know, the Biden administration will have to think about whether or not they want to expand the court. What happens with the court? What will the court actually do if they get a Roe versus Wade kind of um, case up there? Because abortion isn't the only thing that evangelicals really want. Evangelicals want to be in power. And that's the that's the bottom line. Uh, Indeed, indeed. Uh, Anthea Butler, great to see you. Thank you so much for being here this evening. Best of luck with the book. That is tonight's readout. Hey, everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. 